Welcome to Music Lessons, the podcast where we explore the analogous principles of music and growth by interviewing top musicians. I'm your host, Andy Likens. My background is in music and scaling a music team at a fast-paced tech company. As someone who loves to learn and grow, I'm fascinated by the mental frameworks and approaches of musicians and how they can apply to our lives beyond just music. Whether you're a curious music lover or a lifelong learner, this podcast is for you. Grammy-nominated artist Ben O'Neill, guitarist, singer, and songwriter, has played with some of the best-known names in pop, hip-hop, and R&B, including John Legend, Jill Scott, Common, Sting, Kanye West, Christina Aguilera, Kid Cudi, and more. He has performed and co-written songs with Ty Tribbett and his soundcheck band, which redefined gospel music. Ben has contributed to many R&B, gospel, and pop recordings and served as a governor of the Philadelphia chapter of the Recording Academy. He is currently a member of the guitar faculty at the University of the Arts, where he teaches lessons, ensembles, and recording. His artistic releases range from eponymous singer-songwriter works to solo guitar compositions to his band of 20 years, the soul jazz organ trio, the Mini Cues. Please enjoy my interview with Ben O'Neill. And as a reminder, you can find the links and the references to the things that we talk about during the show in the show notes. Ben, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Hi, Andy. Thanks for having me. I'm doing pretty good. I had a busy day of teaching, but I'm glad to be here now. <laughs> well, thanks for taking the time and at dinner time, nonetheless, or close to it. I'm a musician. This is like, this is just after lunch. <laughs> okay, so I have an introductory question for you, which is, I was doing a little bit of research and someone told me to ask you about the Japanese TV show that picked up Corduroy Pants from the MLM's last album. So can you tell me the story? How did this thing come about or how did it go? Oh, man, that's such a good opening question. Unfortunately, I know nothing about that. What? I mean, what you just said is as much as I know about that. I don't know what the TV show is. Oh, my God. Okay. I don't know how they found it. I got like 200 bucks from it or something. Like I don't <laughs> I don't even know. I have no idea. What happened? Who asked you about that? I've got one more then. I've got one more. What about a residency in Las Vegas? Well, I could go on about that one for a little while, but... Uh, First of all, let me just say that I'm not a Vegas personality, just to begin with. That's not like my natural environment. You know what I mean? When I think about like, hey, we should get away for a few nights, like Vegas is not the top of the list. But it was actually, it was a great experience for a number of reasons. One is that we did a lot of work. We played a, a really big show at a really high level and we didn't have to move to a different city every other night. Mm. So it made it easier on the body, and you kind of got into a routine. I actually wrote a lot of, a fair amount of music out there. I practiced out there. I taught some lessons while I was out there. I, you know, it was, in a lot of ways, it was a little more of a human life kind of thing while we still got to play pretty great shows. And I've never been a part of a show that was that big. I mean, there were dancers and sequins and feathers and costume changes and I mean, I could tell you a whole bunch of things, but I, I, one thing I will just say is that I had to do a quick change. Basically, I had to play, you know, the best guitar solo of my life on it. I swear I'm not making this up on an empty stage. The curtain was closed behind me and I just had to, you know, hold the attention of 3000 people with a guitar solo. Well, the band was playing, but they couldn't see the band, you know. That's amazing. And I had to go out there and play the role of rock star for a while and then also the music director, of course, we have 
the music director in our in-ears. So the length of the solo would change occasionally. It got like pretty stable, but every once in a while it'd be like, it, we'd be feeling it and he'd say, you know, take another one, you know? So we'd go another, wow. another eight bars. You're like, I'm all the way up. I don't have anywhere else to go, you know, <laughs> but you're out there on a catwalk in front of 3000 people, you know? So, and so I would finish that solo, you know, usually the crowd would go wild and then I would run back there, go backstage, which was essentially pitch black. They were doing a, uh, like a set change, you know? Okay. Yep. And everybody else would have already been changed to their next outfits, except for me. And I had about 45 seconds. I'm going to realistically, it was probably 120 seconds, but for the sake of the story, I'm going to say it was like 45 seconds to get back there, get out of a, what was at this point, a soaking wet suit (laughs) and put on another form fitting suit and, you know, basically stripped down to my skivvies with the help of a very nice woman named Wanda, also not making that up, backstage, and then run up there and play, you know, play the next song. So were you on stage the whole time for this thing? And what was it? Like, what was the show? What was there, like a theme or a... Well, it was, so I play guitar for John Legend, and he was doing his Vegas residency, which was kind of a, it was kind of the story of his life up to this point, but told through a 70s, 1970s lens. Oh, interesting. So it was very, like... Curtis Mayfield, Superfly, Tastic stuff. It was lots of fun. Cool. And, you know, there were four acts, basically. And this guitar solo was one of the bridges between acts while they were, you know, changing the set and all this kind of stuff. And he was changing and all this. And uh, so I actually, ironically, I was on stage the whole time because I was getting dressed behind some set pieces that, you know, no one could see. But, but yeah, just me and Wanda getting real... familiar with one another getting getting comfortable that's amazing so what a great such a good story if you want to tell us any more about that later that'd be great but um anyway (laughs) but it brought up something which i was going to touch on a little later but i'll just jump right to it since you mentioned it so you were like oh it was nice to be in the same city and i was able to get into a routine so i was curious like what is your routine i mean i was you know poking around a little bit on your website and you talk about these three lanes that you operate in artist and craftsman and teacher Mm-hmm. And so I want to dive into that specifically, but I guess first things first, I mean, is there something that, that weaves those things together for you that you're doing regularly when it comes to approaching your music or, your, or those different, different worlds? That's a good question. I think I used to be more concerned about how separate they were or keeping them separate or something like that. Now I think it all, they all inform each other really. Yeah. So I'm less worried about it being three different things. I, I think one of the themes that runs through all that is just really trying to learn the instrument and be good on the instrument. And that's part of teaching, of course. I sort of think of, like less than a teacher, I think of myself as a student. So if you stay curious, you can, hopefully you can impart some of that inspiration to other students. But, you know, that goal of being good on the instrument informs all three of those things. So if I'm asked to play for an artist and they need some very specific things accomplished, I feel like I can accomplish that because I'm I'm pretty good on the instrument. And if I'm trying to make my own music, I feel like I have some, each thing I do, I hope it's getting a little more interesting, a little more creative, a little more impactful. And of course, it, with the teaching, I'm trying to continue to progress on the instrument so that I can be a better teacher on the instrument. So that's one common thread. But I think really it's about what we were talking about just a, a moment ago before we started, which is doing things that are fulfilling. All of these things are fulfilling for me. Teaching isn't fulfilling for everybody. I think of it as a calling, but I think a a lot of times people teach guitar play, like good guitar players end up teaching beginner guitar lessons. They don't feel called to do that. 
and that's not a great situation for them necessarily, but, but I, I still love learning. Right. So consequently I love teaching. So I find that fulfilling being able to play with someone like John or some of the other artists I've played with, you know, at that level, that's fulfilling. It's great to go out there and play for lots of people and have everybody on the stage and everybody behind the scenes doing really good work and knowing that the experience is exciting and uplifting for the audience. That's really fulfilling. And then, of course, I work on my own creative music, which is challenging at times. It's challenging to work on your own music because you got to believe in it. And, uh, you know, it's challenging to get anybody to listen to it. But actually, I don't even, my main focus on that is just keeping myself creatively active and fulfilled in that way. So I think that's a thread between those three things, too. I find them all fulfilling. So I'm pretty fortunate about all that. Mm, That's really cool. So you talked a little bit about this idea of being good on the instrument, right? And how that sort of weaves in between all three. Do you, I mean, if you're going to go and work on your next EP versus play a ripping guitar solo on stage somewhere in Vegas, do you prepare for those differently? Like mentally, those have got to be a different space. I'd be curious to hear you because, right, there's a common theme, but also they're pretty different experiences, I would imagine. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) That's a good point. With my own music in recent years, I've, I've done a lot of it's, I've just sort of let it be an organic process. It's been a slow process, but that's because we've practiced a lot. And we've recorded a lot and we spent a lot of time thinking about what the visual accompaniment would be. And so there is a certain amount of preparation that's involved there. And that's a common thread with, you know, with playing a big show. Like I go in there pretty darn clear on what I'm going to do. But of course, yeah, it feels different when you're in front of many thousands of people or you're on TV or something like that, or, or you know, you're supporting someone who is very famous and, you know, the stakes, some, the stakes kind of feel higher in a way, hmm. professionally. At the same time, you're never so vulnerable as when you're trying to make your own art and share that with people. So that's, those are pretty high stakes too. I think there's a level of preparation that goes into both of those things. Even the teaching thing, when I was asked to teach guitar lessons at the University of the Arts... I started practicing the material that I would have to teach these folks because it had been a long time since I had worked on anything like that. So I think preparation is kind of a common theme too. And though all, you know, one place you end up maybe in a practice room with somebody, another place you end up in a, a living room rehearsing something, or you end up in a recording studio, you know, making this thing, or it just a little, whatever, a, a small show playing your own stuff. And another place you end up, you know, with like a million dollar video screen behind you, but either way, you know, you're still, you're still kind of out there. Right. So you want to feel pretty confident that you're, that you know what you're doing, you know what you're talking about. Yeah. And how do you find, okay, so I'm going to double click on, on the, in the studio, you mentioned the prep that goes into that. I'm curious how you find your, I'll call them collaborators, but the folks who you're working on with or making music with for your albums, how do you go about finding those folks? And then doing that preparation? Is it, you know, you're all sort of individually working on stuff or you do it together sort of separately, or can you just talk through that a little bit? Yeah. Well, with any creative project, you have to have some combination of these two factors. You need to either have money to pay people to be there, but you know, what creative project has that (laughs) or like an excess of it, you know, even honestly, even really successful artists, it's always a question of money. Uh, The label doesn't want to pay to bring the band to the TV show. Well, you know, the artist is coming out of pocket to do this promo thing on TV. So we're not taking the dancers, you know, or whatever. Right. So there's financial considerations one way or another, even in the most extreme cases of success. So you either need money to create buy-in or you need some sort of like relational creative Mm buy-in. 
or some combination. Usually if you can get some relational buy-in plus pizza, that goes a long way. <laughs> you know, <laughs> The X factor is pizza. <laughs> I mean, I say that jokingly, but seriously, I learned this earlier in my career when I saw somebody, you know, cheat me and the rest of my band out of dinner. You know, they just shaded us on dinner and they saved themselves 150 bucks or something like that. And they lost the goodwill of the people around them, the people who supported them. So it happens that on, I've been fortunate to collaborate with a lot of really talented musicians. And there is a lot of crossover between my sort of career as a craftsman, as I think of it, as a you know professional touring musician and the folks who's been so into my artistic stuff. But actually, interestingly, one guy that I've spent so many hours making music with and who was on a bunch of my latest projects was a guy named Shane. He's an upright bass player. And he was a student of mine when I first started teaching. So there that teacher thing sort of came in. You know, those three still remain, even if you're thinking maybe they're separate. One great thing about teaching, by the way, is that you're, you're connected with people who are talented and they're motivated. And some of them really are outstanding. And so some of those folks have turned into my collaborators along the way too, as the years have gone on. This is at a college level, you know. So, you know, when I met Shane, he was probably 21 or 22 and we've been making music ever since. Yeah. And that's amazing. That's kind of interesting too, because you get to, I don't want to sort of diminish the relationship there, but in a sense, you get to audition a lot of people. In other words, you hear a lot of different people play. And so you get a strong sense of who somebody is when they show up with their instrument and the thing, I guess. That's right. And, you know, we are primarily there, of course, we're trying to share knowledge, give people positive learning experiences. But one of the, I think one of the most impactful messages you can take out of, uh, out of college or maybe just into your career in music in general is you got to show up, you got to do the work, you got to be the guy who, you know, is reliable or is going to be prepared or is going to be killing on the instrument or, you know, learn the music. Those types of lessons can be and you can suss out in the educational environment who's headed in that direction. You know, none of us are perfect, right? But some folks really need some help in, in, to move in that direction. And, you know, you try to sort of express those, those ideals. And what the students don't necessarily, they're not necessarily aware of this at the time, but I try to impart this to them. Like the students that you're around, your peers, are going to be your professional connection as you get out there. And the faculty that you're working with right now are the people who are, they're going to call you for gigs. So, you know, <laughs> try to show up, you know what I mean? Like yeah. <laughs> don't call out cause you're hungover. You know what I mean? That what that tells me is I don't think this guy's ready for prime time yet, you know, which is all right. You're 20, you're not ready for prime time. That's okay. But you know, but the nice thing is you do meet a lot of people, first of all, who make a lot of progress. And that's actually the most, that's the most exciting thing. But secondly, you do meet some folks and you say right away, you say, Oh, this person's outstanding. They're going to do some good things. Maybe we can, work together in the future. Oh, that, yeah, that's great. Okay. So you mentioned something earlier that I'm going to bring back up, which was about curiosity and sort of you staying curious through your teaching. Are you doing something specific to foster that curiosity in yourself or even in your students or even in your collaborators, if you're working on albums or traveling? Um, because I find this to be, at least for me, as just a, as an adult who works a day job, like curiosity is super important. I think it's one of the, it's one of the things where if someone's asking good questions or trying to understand things or whatever, I find it to be so critically important. And it's usually an indicator that someone's at least trying right to do something. Yeah. I was curious if there's, you know, an approach that you have with that or how you think about it in a certain way with your 
with your students or whatever. Yeah. Um, actually, I mean, I'd, I'd ask the same question for you since, you know, you've been in this part of the business that I don't really know much about and you've done, I, it seems like you've worked all aspects of that. And then at the same time, anybody, anything that you do, even me, you know, touring for an artist after a certain time, you know, you, it's kind of like, okay, we have an idea how this gets done. We can do this. You don't want to feel as though you've plateaued, you know, you want to continue to grow. Right. So, so I, I mean, actually I would ask the same question to you, but the, just briefly, actually I've said this to some students. I don't say this anymore because it, it's kind of, it's a little harsh, but, but it's still true. If you think you're killing, you're not paying attention. Mm. And I mean, that's now the, I think it, right down the middle, that's true. There's so much out there to be inspired by or curious about. Actually, just last night, my wife and I were watching this live performance of Ahmad Jamal, who just passed. He's one of the great jazz pianists. And we were watching this video of him, and he must have been 84 or 86 when he was playing this. And it was some of the best music we've ever heard in our lives. It was so amazing. And I'm into Ahmad Jamal, but I had never heard that before. And my wife was not familiar. And we were listening to this just, and we both said the same thing. We were like, this is, this is like, this might be the best music I've ever heard in my life. Which is something being, you know, that I've been pretty <laughs> involved in music for quite a while. Do you remember what the video was specifically? It was, I could send it to you. It was a live performance in France from, I think, 2013. It was Autumn Leaves, which is a song that's been recorded and played a billion times. A times, yeah. And, you know, and you were kind of like, really? He's, okay, killing. <laughs> so, <laughs> so killing. So deep so deep. So it's not, you know, if you think you're killing, you're not paying attention. It's not that hard actually to find something that's going to blow your mind and, and open up something new. And so it's sometimes it takes some effort. A lot of times we get in our own way with that, but if you can make a little bit of effort, you'll get a lot of reward. I think on that in terms of me staying curious, a point. Oh, so another thing with that, with the school is that I try to stay practicing. This sounds really funny and really like by the book, but I'm usually practicing some element of the guitar syllabus that I teach because it's a goldmine of information and I haven't mastered it all. And if you mastered it all, you would be really, really good at guitar. So I'm still working on the thing. I'm still working on the thing. I actually just saw a masterclass of a jazz guitarist named Paul Bolenbeck. It was great. And he did this amazing thing. I'm always saying this to students, let's break it into smaller pieces. You know, they asked some giant question and say, well, okay, let's start with some foundational pieces here. And what you discover is that if you start with small pieces there, it will lead you to the next thing. It'll lead you to the next question. And it could go an almost infinite number of directions from there if you're willing to start at square one. So, uh, and he did that in this masterclass with his, someone asked him about fingerstyle guitar and he spent the next hour showing all these variations that he has actually practiced through. I mean, real jazz geek stuff. And I thought, wow, you know, that's someone who's staying curious. I like that. And I think we need to do that in the arts. I don't, I mean, I think in life, actually, for anybody, we need to stay curious and we need to make room for that. It's not the easiest thing to do, but that's, that's a worthy goal. And I think to that end, we need to try to clear out some things in our lives that are taking time away from the things that are actually fulfilling. But what do you do to stay curious? What do you have to say about this? It's actually, I mean, my answer would be really similar to yours stated a little bit differently, which is like, you just have to challenge your assumptions. If you think something is going the way you expect it to go, my first question is, well, is that really what's happening? And usually it's a little bit different, right? It's different enough for you to get into the details. Right, right. And then discover like, oh, I actually learned 
I mean, for us, it's, you know, working on projects with other people. And so if we're asking a question of someone that we're working with, you ask a few questions and you're like, oh, okay, I've had this person now talk to me a little in a little bit more detail and sort of, this isn't the same thing that I've done a million times. It's a different thing. And so I, I think even just, and my personal response to this as well, because I had to kind of learn this too over time. I wasn't a really naturally curious person, which is to um, like force myself to ask the question that I think is really dumb or really obvious. And I've learned over the years that the question that in my mind, I was like, this is probably really obvious. And I'm guessing everybody in the room knows the answer to this already. Almost always I get the response of, that was a great question. Thanks for asking. Here's the answer. It's really amazing how many times that's happened. I believe that. I think it's pretty rare that anybody responds to a question by saying, that was a stupid question. (laughs) Right. I think it's pretty unusual, actually. To that point, actually, I think that curiosity is key because I've, I've been fortunate to meet some really interesting people. Some people have been very successful. And what I've discovered along the line, because I've been in those situations, you know, a fair amount over the years playing music, you know, you end up as, you know, interesting people come to the shows and that kind of thing. What I've discovered is if you see that person that you're interested in and you go up to them and you say, Hey man, I love that thing that you did. Thanks. That was great. You don't actually get anything from them. I'm not saying that this should necessarily be a transactional thing, but if you ask them the right question, Mm. you might end up in an interesting conversation with this person that has made a difference in your life. And what I've discovered is that you have, when you see that opportunity, you have usually a pretty small window of time to determine what's a question that's going to make this person respond. And so I've been fortunate enough. There have been a couple of blunders. Honestly, I did not, I didn't ask the right question for some people. But I did ask the right question for some people. I, I had an interesting conversation with Sting. I had an interesting conversation with Nile Rogers. I had an interesting conversation with Chase Utley, who's a, a baseball player who I admire a lot. I mean, you have to tell us about at least one of those. <laughs> well, okay. I had an interesting conversation with Booker T. Jones from Booker T. and the MGs cool. just the other day. Uh, well, okay. So an easy one to tell, and one of my favorites is with Chase Utley, who's who's a, something like a six-time All-Star for the Phillies, and and a, you know, kind of a hero for a lot of us in this town. And I was playing with John. We ended up at this Dodgers. He played his last year or two with the Dodgers and we ended up at a Dodgers event. And I was like, Chase Elliott's going to be here. I'm going to, I'm going to hang around and find this guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't actually, interestingly, I'd already met him a couple of times, but it's like, Oh, bad. here he comes again. <laughs> yeah. Ah, this, this guitar player guy. Uh, no, no, he couldn't have been, he couldn't have been cooler. He was super cool. Super cool. And uh, also, I don't know how much time you spend around pro athletes, but he's not what we would consider a big person. Like if you saw him on the field, you wouldn't be like, oh, he's a giant. But in person, he, at least compared to me, was a giant. I mean, it was like superhuman stuff. Like, I don't know how (laughs) often you're around superhero type people, but that definitely stood out too. Not not very often. (laughs) Right. Me neither, apparently. I would have thought maybe out in California, you know. Anyway, that's true. Gold's gym isn't far away. I could walk down there. That's that's what I'm saying. Like you could probably like try to have neighbors. Anyway, so long story short, you know, I did say to Chase, like, hey, man, I just really admire the way you approach the game. You know, said that piece. But then I said, do you have any thoughts about longevity? And at this point, he was nearing the end of his career. Actually, this was just before his last season, which we didn't know. But he Mm. was certainly considering these questions. So what year roughly or how long ago was this, Dito? I'm going to say uh, 2017 or 2018, okay, something okay. like that, pre-pandemic. 
I'm not sure what is last year, but I said, you know, do you have any thoughts about longevity? And that was the right question. Mm. And he paused for a good moment. And he said, well, this is what I swear to God, this is what he said. He said, well, you have to love it because otherwise it's too hard. Mm-hmm. And it's a guy who, you know, with six-time All-Star, won a World Series, is considered one of the best second basemen of his generation, millionaire, like, you know, more money than he would ever know what to spend on. You know, and he, what, he, what he said is, well, you have to love it. Like, you have to stay in touch with that because mm. otherwise it's too hard. And then he said, here's some other things. How old are you? And I was still in my 30s at the time. And uh, he said, okay, so you're going to have to start taking care of your body differently just to maintain what you already have. Not, not you know, what you're going to find is that they're going to be younger, stronger guys who are quicker than you. And you're going to have to work harder and find new ways to work harder just to maintain what you have. And then the third thing he said was, and try not to be too hard on yourself. And now this is from someone who expected a lot of himself. And, you know, I mean, most professional athletes don't get to that level, just like coasting, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. They don't just show up. People right. are working pretty hard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's the same in professional music too. You, it's not an easy thing and you better love it because otherwise it is too hard. <laughs> and I had all of those I got all those notes, which are basically the best career advice that I've ever received. And, and also in a very concise and transferable manner. And so I've told any student who would listen and some who wouldn't, those three bullet points. And all because I was curious enough to be bold enough yeah. to stick around and, you know, try to find this guy. And then I, you know, I asked him a meaningful question. I got lucky, basically. I really hit the nail on the head with that question. And um, what I would say is you're going to find yourself in situations with interesting people. Curiosity is one of the most valuable things you could bring to that table. And why longevity? Was it because he was an athlete and you were sort of expect or or it was just on your mind? I'm curious kind of where that came from. Yes, that's a totally reasonable question. Because, and I, I wonder how you feel about this in your career, but when you're starting out, you know, so many things are new. There's excitement you're moving from one thing to the next, you're building, you feel like you're, you're hoping you're moving in the right direction. It's a lot of motion, you know? And as they say, the only thing harder than getting to the major leagues is staying in the major leagues. <laughs> as you know, as your career sort of gets to a certain point, you feel like, okay, I figured some of that stuff out, right? I'm here. I'm looking for the next opportunity. What does the future hold? Right. And particularly in music, nobody really wants to be on the road when they're 65, you know what I mean? Like love performing, sure. But doing it because you have to do that to make a living, that's tough. And I've been fortunate to do it in situations where the accommodations and, you know, the team, the support and all that stuff were excellent. You know, I've done it in just about the most cushy way it could possibly be done, (laughs) to be honest, like just about the most luxurious way you could travel around the world. I've been very fortunate to do that some of the time. And that's still not easy. Uh, yeah. Right. So, you know, it's like, you know, Singapore is literally 12 hours different from the East Coast time. You know what I mean? I don't care how you get there. You're still <laughs> going to be on the other side of the planet and you're going to be away from the most important people in your life. And then you're going to be riding this adrenaline dragon of trying to go out there and, and execute and play, you know, a great guitar solo and then find <laughs> some food and maybe sleep or something and then get back home, or whatever. That stuff is challenging. So, Longevity is something that's on my mind a lot because I've been very fortunate to get to a point in my career where I've done some interesting things. People seem to think I'm a good guitar player. 
the phone keeps ringing. That's fantastic. But what does, you know, what does it take to, to make this make sense in 10 and 20 years? Mm. So longevity is on my mind all the time. Yeah. That's super interesting. I was going to ask you about the touring thing sort of within the same realm of this discussion, which is like, and you know, we, I think you and I've talked about this in the past as well, but it's just, what is that like to be in a different place all the time and touring around and then sort of answering that call and feeling like, I mean, I don't know, it, it must be both exciting and daunting at the same time. And then how do you stay mentally in it, right? Every night from night to night when you are just going and going and going, I mean, is there, how do you approach that? I just, I just love to hear you talk about it a little bit more. I think it's fascinating and difficult and all that stuff. I'm glad you think it's fascinating. I I'm hesitant to go into this topic too much because I, because among my friends and colleagues, we talk about this so much. I feel like <laughs> surely this couldn't be interesting, <laughs> but you say it's interesting. So I will try. Well, let me pause you while you collect your thoughts here. I think it's interesting because as I have gotten older personally, I find that showing up and executing every day is probably the most important thing you can do. And so this is literally like, I mean, this is literally your job is showing up and like, you don't really have the option of not showing up and executing when you're touring like this and you're doing it in sort of all circumstances. That's why I think it's interesting. And so that's why I want to, hear you talk about it. Cause I mean, you, you've done, you've done this for a big chunk of your life. Yeah. One of my favorite sort of tour jokes, basically. <laughs> uh, I said to this friend of mine, we were on the road and it had been kind of a grueling couple of weeks. And then we had a day off and we might've had two days off. And I said to him, we were like going to sound check. And I said, man, I know that we just had two days off, but I honestly need another day off. And he said, me too. I'm so tired. It's cool though. I'm just going to get some sleep during the show. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, in some ways, this is funny. Sometimes the easiest part of the touring thing is the 90 minutes that you're on the stage. Interesting. Especially if you're, you know, if you love what you do and you're with a team that's kicking ass, you know, with John, we aim for excellence every night. And partly that's just because he's excellent every night. And so we know what we're doing. We feel pretty comfortable in that situation. So we go out there and we knock it down for, you know, whatever it is, 60 minutes for a private event or, you know, it was like two hours and 10 minutes or 20 minutes for the Vegas thing. That was a long show. That's a long show. But in some ways that can be the easiest part. Like the more challenging part is what do you do with yourself with all that adrenaline coursing through your veins after you get off the stage at 1130, <laughs> you know, and you haven't had dinner yet. And uh, I don't know, sometimes it really is wild because you're, you're getting off the stage and you're going straight to the next town or you're getting off the stage and you're getting like with the last Europe run we did, we were, we were flying around on a private jet. So we were, which sounds amazing, <laughs> but presented some difficulties too. I mean, the real reason we were on a jet was because it would have been physically impossible for us to do that many shows any other way. <laughs> <laughs> Literally not possible to get the people where they needed to go to do that many shows. So you know, like we played in Finland, for example. This was actually this is a good example. We played in Finland. And um, ironically, I don't know, just sort of unexpectedly, Government Mule was on the same festival. And it's a guy, I'm blanking on his name, Warren Haynes is the guitar player for him. He's a great guitar player. He's actually a great singer, too. He's just, just a great guitar player, that guy. Golly. And uh, the tour manager for John, you know, knew Warren and all this. So anyway, I got to have this great conversation with Warren Haynes. It couldn't have been nicer. It was so cool. And his set was smoking. 
they actually did an Etta James song called I'd Rather Go Blind, which is one of the great Etta James songs. And they just, oh my God, they just killed it. They started it and I was like, yo, they're going to do I'd Rather Go Blind. Like, <laughs> really? You know what I mean? And then they did it. And it was special, man. It was that guy. Anyway, we're up in Finland and it's in the middle of the summer. So it, it doesn't get dark right uh, that high up, you know, and we, it happened that we were in a place called Pori, which is actually further north in Finland than, than you might normally go. So, you know, it was three in the morning and it was, it was like twilight. It felt like it was, you know, 8 PM on a June day in the U S you know, it was, it was really, it was a little surreal. And we, uh, how did we do this? Yeah. We got on a bus, we went to the, you know, the airport and got on a plane and flew to wherever it was. And then the next day, we, oh man, I can't even give you all the details of that whole thing. Uh, that's so crazy. That's too bad. So I'll, I'll tell you about it some other time, yeah, yeah. but you know, the travel was bonkers. And then we woke up in another place after like a couple hours of sleep on a plane. And then we, you know, played the next show. The crew went straight into load in and then whatever, but like probably, I don't recall this specifically, but probably like, so then your choice is like, oh, I'm in this crazy place that I've never been in before. Do I walk around a little bit or do I try to get another two hours of sleep because I don't know which way is up and then like find basically by the time you're done with a tour, I don't care who you are, by the time you're done with the tour, you're not eating breakfast before like two in the afternoon. <laughs> and you're eating lunch right before you go on stage at like 8 p.m. And then you're not eating dinner until, you know, 11 or 12, right? So so you try to get a couple more hours of sleep and then you show up to catering and people are still like trying to figure out what country they're in. And yeah, so basically people have a routine so they really hit their stride right when we're walking on stage. Mm. And that's like almost after, like after a couple of weeks on the road, that's really the first time that people are themselves is like, that's like the beginning of the day in a way. You know what I mean? Huh. Interesting. Or it's at least midday. You know how like maybe you show up at the office, you know what I mean? And people aren't really in their bag until like, you know, 1130 or something. It's like that. And you're dragging physically and, um, uh, you know, you haven't seen your wife in two weeks or whatever, and then you, you hit it. And, but you know, when, when the downbeat hits, you got to bring it. Right. So yeah. that's just a little window into the thing. What I do to try to make sense though, is I keep a pretty, I've been pretty consistent with it over the years, a pretty consistent exercise routine. I'm always reading a book of some kind. I basically don't drink because I don't think it's particularly helpful for me in, in that situation. Some of this is Chase Utley stuff too. But basically just taking care of yourself yeah. so that you can sort of overcome the various challenges of that much travel and that much performance and try to be, be at your best. But I don't think I've ever come home from a tour and been like, yep, feeling great, you know? <laughs> Spin it up again. Got another, you know? I got another month in me. Yeah, no. And that's why most tours, in my personal experience, you might, there might be a couple exceptions to this, but most tours really don't go longer than six weeks. And my, my personal feeling on this, and this is anecdotal, I don't have any like research on this, but my feeling on that is that if you go much longer than that, people start to fall apart. Yeah. And so you give, you send people home, you know, and then you do the next, leg. You, you send them home for a week or two weeks or maybe a month or whatever. And then you do the next leg. All right, we'll see you in a month. We'll go back. You know, we'll, we'll, we just did the U.S. run. A month from now, we'll do the Europe run or whatever. Yeah, cool. Because I think if you do it too long, it's rough. Yeah, it's un, it's unsustainable, I'm sure, for everybody. Yeah. Cool. That's awesome. So I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about stuff that you're working on now. I know that you've got an MLM's album coming out at some point uh, in yeah. the future now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But curious, what else is going on in your in your world these days? What are you focused on musically or not? Or anything else that you're focused on? 
Yeah. Um, one challenge that I'm realizing about myself is that I, I'm involved in too many things at once. So I've just decided just in the last like couple of weeks, I just realized like, oh, I can't record any more music until I finish the music that I've started recording, which is cool. Actually, I'm thankful that I, I think it's useful every once in a while to set some kind of arbitrary concrete boundaries like that. Totally. Like I try to not drink coffee after 2 p.m., which is like a little, you know, sometimes people are like, bro, live a little, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but what it does is it, it sort of it keeps it so I can really enjoy my coffee and I don't, I don't get tweaked out, you know, cause I had like coffee at five o'clock or something. So anyway, I realized like, Oh, I need to put a little boundary on that. I'm not going to record anything else until I finish all these other things. So I'll try to be quick about it, but I have a, I have a project called light and there are three volumes. Volume one is, I think of it as uh, sort of the black and white version of it. it. My goal here was to make the most transparent, music I could make. I tried to be very sincere about the songwriting. It's about mortality and the passage of time and faith. And, and I tried to sort of deal with these things in the plainest language I could find for it. And so it's just me and uh, playing guitar and singing and, and my friend Shane playing upright. So it's about the sparest orchestration you could have for a project as well. We did a vinyl pressing of that, very limited run of that, and, and a 30-page photo zine that four different photographers contributed to. And with liner notes and lyrics and such and performance film. And then we, uh, we sold it and we gave all the proceeds to a homeless shelter in Philly called Broad Street Ministries. So that was, that project took a while. I mean, Shane and I spent many, many, probably hundreds of hours rehearsing that material and then recording it live basically. And where did you record it live and why, why record it live? Just, you mean you went to the studio together and recorded live that way, or you did a performance and recorded the performance? Well, we've actually, we did do a couple of live performances that we recorded and they ended up sounding almost exactly like the album anyway, which is good to me. I, I've done a few tiny desk contest entries this way and I'm like, yeah, this is exactly how this sounds actually. This, <laughs> this is what I meant. <laughs> this is exactly what I meant. But what happened was because we spent so much time rehearsing in his living room, just the place he was living at the time had a sort of unusually large living room. And it was also quiet and it had hardwood floors and we spent so much time playing it there that it felt like that was the room kind of became part of the instrument. It just sounded right to us there. So we recorded the instruments live in that living room with, you know, and over the years I've collected some, some pretty nice recording gear. And so we used that. And, and then I did the vocals separately because uh, singing is hard. <laughs> and so that's what I mean by live in that way. I mean, those are complete takes and, uh, because I wanted to try to keep some of that transparency on the music too. You know, there, there's a couple of flubs in there, but I felt like, and that was, that was another part of the process was, can I be okay with, mm. you know, with some mistakes in here? You know, this isn't going to be a perfect thing. So, and so where did the concept of this one come from? Sorry to cut you off, but curious no, where no. the, you mentioned, um, you sort of mentioned those broader themes at the top. I'm just curious, like how, how it is that this one came about for you? And did you know it was going to be three volumes before you started or? No. I thought it was going to be two, and then I realized that it, it needed to be three. So the album before this is more of a rock album. It's called Salt. And in the Sermon on the Mount, which I think is Matthew 5 and 6, there's a particular heading over a section of this that says salt and light, and you know, it says you're the salt of the earth. And uh, I'd have to pull up the scripture to get it just right. But it seemed to me that the like salt as a rock record was pretty gritty, and it seemed to me that that just felt like the right sort of answer was light. 
ironically, I mean, it's about some pretty challenging themes. So I don't think that anyone would really listen to it and say like, hey, this is bubbly, light music, you know, <laughs> but, but it is ultimately, I think it is actually quite about the light because it's about finding the light in the midst of those challenging things that life inevitably throws at you. So, so it was in some way, you know, that was part of my response was that I, I didn't want to play. I was writing introspective music in hotel rooms and it wasn't going to, to me, it didn't seem like it would live in a rock band setting. And so what I was thinking was one of the marks of a great song is to me is if you were to perform this in the sparest way possible, would it still be a great song? Because basically, we're, let's strip it down to melody, harmony, and rhythm. Does it still work? And one way to do that, in, at least in our American music, is basically guitar and voice. You know, if the song is working with guitar and voice, you probably have a good song. If it's not, you might have any number of other things. You might have some great production, but maybe not quite enough of a great song. You know what I mean? Which is cool. Production is cool, you know? Or you might have a great groove, but not really a great song necessarily, right? So I was trying to see, can I do this in the sparest way I can manage. And uh, yeah, it's kind of an exercise in vulnerability, to be honest. And then, so Light Volume 2 is sort of the full color version of that. And that does have, it has drums and all these guitars that could be, you know, playing guitar. Like I, you know, I just like, I went to town on that. So there's, there's <laughs> loads, loads of guitar on that one. But, you know, similar themes. And that, I hope that will come out in the next couple of months. I hope that'll come out, you know, summer of uh, 23 and then volume three was a couple other songs that I kind of really wrote in a different period in my life. But I think our journeys, our journeys are like that. You know, you, you, you sort of turn around at a certain point and realize like, oh, I'm in a different section. I'm not sure where I crossed over there, but now this is a little different. But it seemed to me that I needed to put a button on this. And I wrote some tunes and I got some friends to arrange some strings and we recorded live strings for it. So I need to finish recording that. But it's been interesting and then on top of that, there's all this other rock music that I have and, and the mini cues and all this kind of stuff. So many, many creative things going on. Completion is one of the challenges. You know, the only thing harder than starting is completing, I think. So yeah, Light's been a, it's been a multi-year process. I mean, I started writing those songs maybe in, this is crazy, but I, I started writing them. And I remember specifically being in one hotel room in Miami in, uh, in 2015, I was writing this song about like the passage of time and I was like using the seasons as an analogy. And I was sitting in this hotel room and I realized like uh, the whole thing about this hotel room was so that like beautiful people could come here and have sex on vacation. <laughs> like every like the mood lighting was all like lighting settings in the hotel room and the shower was like transparent, you know. And <laughs> I was like, what? And, you know, Miami was like bumping outside my window right now I'm, I'm writing this thing about <laughs> so anyway that was 2015 so it's been a long time coming but I kind of feel like I, I don't I don't regret that I think that it's good to let a project run its course and and the other thing is I've also been like I've been a lot of places since then too mm. it's not like I've just been kind of like sitting around working on one EP for, <laughs> for eight right. years you know right what I mean? right <laughs> Well, that was going to be my question is what's it like to revisit something that you wrote however many years ago and then you come back to it? You know, is it like you have to spend a little time with it to sort of get yourself back into the zone or are you applying, you know, Ben O'Neill version 3.2 instead of 3.1 to it? Yeah. Right. Actually, you know, it's been a little while, but I've revisited some of that music. I mean, light is out and I, I'm not playing it anywhere either. So it's not like I, I do sort of have this feeling of I, I do like to do things and then 
move on to the next thing. Mm. Uh, maybe it's because I take too long to finish the one thing, but <laughs> I, you know, I did go back and listen to some of that stuff and I think it holds up. I think the songs are good, which is nice because I think creative people oftentimes revisit what, well, you know, maybe you experience this in your life. You, uh, but just in terms of songwriting, you write a song and you're really excited about it. You're like, it's the best song I've ever written. It's killing. And you might revisit it the next day and think, this is terrible. This is embarrassingly stupid. <laughs> I want to show it to my friend just so that he can like be embarrassed about how stupid this is. And then, I don't know, maybe, you know, three days later, you listen to it again. And you say, actually, that, that chorus is kind of killing. So it's nice when you go back to something you've worked on and say, actually, that holds up. You know, I, I like that. You know, I'm sure that's true in your work, too. I'm sure you've had some work along the way where you said, you know what, we really got that one right. And it's happened uh, some, too. I, the most recent Tiny Desk Contest entry I did is a song called The View, which is on Light Volume 2. And we recorded it. And we did several takes of it. And you're in the middle of that. And you're thinking, like, I think that was a good take. That was a good take. You know, I, I think that one, that was... I could show that to people. I could show that to Nile Rogers, you know, and it'd be all right. <laughs> Did you? Out of curiosity? No, I don't oh. know him like that. No. I, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I could, you know, I could send it to some interesting people, I suppose. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that. I do often send that stuff around to, you know, musicians that I know and, and say, hey, here's my latest yeah. effort. Because I think it's important that we let people know about our creative efforts. Yeah. Everyone's being bombarded by information and life, right? So... I think it's worth, if you make a, a sincere creative effort, I think it's worth letting people know, hey, you know, I, I don't want to derail you, but I want to ask you specifically about this. I feel like musicians probably more than anybody, I think, have to do this. I have a horrible problem telling people about the stuff that I'm working on. Even simple stuff at work sometimes. Like it's, it's tough for me to like build up the, the guts, so to speak, to make the ask or to just say, hey, check this thing out that I'm doing. Right. How do you think about that? I mean... Or is it something that you just made yourself do and so you're used to it now or? Oh, no, no, no. I'm not any good at it. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. No. I probably didn't send it to you because I was like, oh, he doesn't have time for this. Like, no, I'm terrible at it. It's like a constant struggle. I forced myself to post on Instagram today. I We played this show, but my band, I will go blank on social media for, for like sometimes weeks at a time, you know. And then, you know, what's funny, man, like, all kinds of people, people, like amateur guitar players, sometimes pro, like really good guitar players are like, hey man, I saw that thing you were doing about the scales or the arpeggios that you were posting because I, you know, sometimes I post these technical studies and like, yeah, man, I've taken a bunch of good stuff from you, you know? And so mm. yeah, that's encouraging. So I think, uh, I think it's a long process of accepting, well, it's a long process of learning and sort of gaining experience and turning that into creative value. I hesitate to kind of put a currency thing on, on it like that, but I think if you're dealing in your art or in your craft sincerely, it has value, right? If you're dealing with your art or your craft with sincerity, it has value. It takes a while to acquire that value, but once you have it, it's worth sharing and people, you know, it's, you're vulnerable when you share, right? Cause people might say, well, that's the stupidest hook I ever heard. I can't believe you call yourself a songwriter, right? But most of the time, that's not really what happens. Most of the time, what happens is people say, I didn't even know you did. Or mm. I love this thing that you did. Yeah. I mean, every once in a while, I run into somebody who says, man, I love that Corduroy Pants song. <laughs> I heard it on a Japanese TV show <laughs> and it just is stuck in my head ever since. Yeah. Like, what, what were you doing in Japan? I did love that song, though, by the way. I, I love that Thanks. was, I think, one of the first things I heard you guys do. I thought it was great. Anyway, sorry. Well, you know what's funny, though? That I mean, all I was going to say about the Tiny Desk thing was, 
we did it. And then, you know, you put it up there and you're like, is this terrible? Are people going to be like, oh my God, Ben, with all the sincerity already, shut up and like <laughs> make a beat or something, you know, like, ugh, enough of this proselytizing. But that's not actually what people say. What people say is, that was beautiful. A great singer friend of mine said, sing, Ben. You know what I mean? I'm like, this is like, I know she's one of the best singers in the world, you know? So a great guitar player friend of mine said, I, I love the guitar parts you're playing. That was beautiful. So I think uh, when we take that step, that risk to share it, it's worth it. it it's going to positively affect somebody. And I'd say, go for it. So keep doing it. So anyway, today I, I forced myself to post on Instagram because um, on Friday, my band, the Mini Cues, which is an organ trio, opened for Booker T, uh, Booker T and the MGs. And yeah, super cool. I mean, there's no Mini Cues without Booker T and the MGs. <laughs> I mean, it's just so cool that we got that opportunity. I happen to know the guitar player. Although that's not why we got the opportunity. <laughs> we got the opportunity because the guitar player said, hey, I'm going to be in Philly. And uh, I was like, oh, crazy. And I called my friend Luke, who plays in the mini queues. I said, we got to go see Booker T. And he was like, yeah, actually, I know the guy who books that place. Hold on a second. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I got a lot of footage of that show. And uh, in the moment, I thought the band sounded great. And I was not real pleased with how I played. Hmm. But fortunately... I had these videos to go back and check mm -hmm. out. And I did. And I have to say, uh, you know, I'm pretty happy with some of the stuff, actually, uh, upon review. <laughs> I thought it came out all right. So I've, I, yesterday I was like, Ben, I don't care how you feel about this tomorrow. You have to post this tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Because you open for Booker T. That's awesome. This band that you've been a part of for 20 years, you've kept it going. It's something that you care about. People seem to like it. Here's a solo that's not perfect, but, you know, it's what you do. Share it, right? So... It's no, it's a struggle, but all I guess all I'd say to you, Andy, is uh, keep working on it because you know, yeah, it's worth it. Yeah, I have uh, I have one not not to turn this into my um TED talk about uh sharing things, but uh, this I don't know if you know who Seth Godin is, he's uh, he's sort of called a marketing guy, but he's more of a anyway, he's great, Jeez, check him out if you if you haven't heard of him. But one of his things is about um he talks about just putting out your work and he's like, just, he's a writer, he's a book guy. And he's like, just publish the thing and get it out. Because number one, he's like, if no one responds to it, it's not like the end of the world. It doesn't matter. You can just move on to the next thing. But he's like, number two, it, you have no idea what people are going to respond to. You just have no clue. And you will never know unless you put the thing out and tell people about it. And I think that's really true. It's like, we build up all these stories in our mind <laughs> about how we're going to be interpreted in some way. And they're just all fiction, right? Like it doesn't, it's just not even close to reality most of the time. Well, that's, that's the thing. It's, it's, I mean, this is a challenge I think for basically anybody, but, yeah. but particularly for creative pursuits, there's what we think about our art, for example, like what, okay, I wrote this song, what I think about it. And then there's what I think other people might think about it. Mm -hmm. And there's also what other people might think about it, right? What I think other people might think about it is not necessarily true, you know? And what I think about it might be informed by some assumptions that I'm making about a whole bunch of stuff that I'm, you know, I just don't know. <laughs> this is, these are known unknowns here. We're like, we just don't know what. So yeah, if you let that stop you, what you end up doing is practice. We, I say I said this today to a student. We get good at what we practice, and if you practice 
stopping yourself from being creative, you're going to get really good at stopping yourself from being creative. And <laughs> then what are we doing here? You know, yeah. like be an accountant, I guess, you know what I mean? You'd make <laughs> way better money and you know, but the, I don't know, like, I, you know, my accountant, like he's, he's a good accountant. He's got a lot more money than I do. I don't, I wouldn't trade places with him to be honest though. <laughs> you know what I mean? So anyway, I, I think, uh, I, I agree with, uh, with this golden idea of put it out because we're making a lot of assumptions that are, that are just formed in the dark. They're just totally formed in the dark. Yeah. And actually I, to your, maybe you're familiar with the daily stoic. I listened to that on occasion. Um, that guy, uh, I think his name is Ryan Holiday, is uh, is an author. I've not read any of his stuff, but I have read a lot of Stoics. He wrote this book that kind of like broke for him. And uh, I think it's called The Obstacle is the Way. And he was talking with an author who wrote a book called The Psychology of Money, which also broke. But both of them had a very hard time getting it, getting either of their works published. And they had to wonder, you know, what are we doing here? You know, like, is, is there is there an audience for this? And the publishers were saying, you know, to the Psychology of Money author, I don't know, like, what do you, like, we don't need another finance book, basically, you know? <laughs> right. Somehow it got out there and, and it was, it was a great success because actually it did, it was in tune with what people needed, right? Uh, so it was just, since we're talking, you know, you're a consumer of podcasts and just to the point where you don't really know what the audience is going to respond to. Why cut yourself off from, from that, what could be a positive response? And really what you're cutting yourself off from is your own creative potential mm. by some judgments that you've preordained. So yeah, that's a constant battle. I mean, that's a constant battle for probably anybody, but certainly those of us in the creative spaces. Yeah. Cool. So you mentioned mini cues. Mini cues also just had an album come out or it's coming out soon. The mini cues have two relatively recent EPs. I think one was, uh, I think the last one maybe came out in June of 2020 or something like that. Yeah. So this band is just a long standing collaboration between me and Luke Carlos O'Reilly. We met a long time ago and we love a lot of the same music, uh, Booker T and the MGs and the meters and Ahmad Jamal and, and Ray Charles and, the sound of Philadelphia. And, and so, and Philadelphia has a kind of an organ trio tradition and it's just been fun. It's been fun to be in a band that has its own momentum. Mm. You know, uh, how did you find, um, I'm sorry, what's his name? Luke Carlos O'Reilly. Yeah. How did you find Luke? Well, I'm so glad he's not here to tell this story. <laughs> I'm so tired of hearing his version of the story. He claims that we met on a gig in Rittenhouse Square, which is a nice park in Philadelphia, where there was like an outdoor concert going on. I was playing with, I was playing with an artist who was, uh, there were sisters who were connected to some of the neo soul stuff that was going on at the time, and I, I can't remember who he was playing with. One of those acts. Um, he claims we met there, and I kind of faded him, <laughs> which is possible, but. Uh, my recollection of it is that we met at a jam session in in uh, at a club called Chris's, uh, which is one of the one of the jazz clubs in Philly. And uh, man, I think maybe what happened was the house band was an organ trio, so it's just organ, guitar, mm -hmm. and drums, and the bass is covered by either the left hand or the or the pedals. And uh, I think he got on. We got on and played together, and he had never really done that before but it was a good match and we were about the same age and we had a, a bunch of things in common and it was just like, 
we were just fast friends. You know, we were just, it was like we were best friends right after that. Yeah. But like any band, you know, there, there's been ups and downs and there's been lots of disagreements along the way. And, but we're in the middle of a nice, nice run. The last, like, last maybe, especially five years or so of this band has been a lot of fun. So uh, we've backed a bunch of really good vocalists and uh, I produced an album for a great singer named Callie Graver. It's kind of a jazz songwriter crossover vibe. Cool. She's a great singer. And, um, you know, brought Luke in to uh, play piano on that. And he uses me on a, on a lot of his projects as well. So it's been a fun, long running creative partnership. I th- and I think it's based in, for some reason, so much of the same music connects with us. This actually happened the other day. We we played at a, at a club. We did a Friday, Saturday here in Philly behind a great singer named Emily Braden. She was awesome. We were playing Etta James music and also Etta Jones, who is a singer that I was not familiar with, but is incredible. And uh, I became familiar with, and they happened to be playing after the set. We we're, you know, kind of packing up. Luke was eating his food again at like midnight and, uh, and they were playing some Otis Redding, which I'm sure Booker T was on. And I was wrapping cables and I thought to myself, I can't even stand this. I can't stand how good this is. I can't stand it. It's breaking my heart right now. How freaking good this is. And Luke said, Luke was like, 10 feet away from me with his girlfriend. He said, yo. And I said, I know. That's all he said. He said, yo. I said, I know. I know. We were not in conversation with each other. I said, I know. And then he said, I swear I'm not making this up. He said, I can't stand this. I can't stand Otis Redding. I can't stand how he sounds. It doesn't even make any sense. He died when he was 27 years old. He sounds like he's 50. It Like... <laughs> I and I could you know I kind of couldn't believe it that you know on the one hand I knew exactly what he was feeling you know but that's the relationship there so oh that's cool that's cool okay so we are creeping in on 90 minutes of your time okay. <laughs> so I have just two last questions and the first one is like where can people find you if people want to listen to your stuff where's the best spot for them to go yeah well my music is under Ben O'Neill so on Spotify or Apple Music or YouTube, Ben O'Neill Music. And it's an interesting variety of stuff. My singer-songwriter stuff is there. My rock music is there. Or you can look up the mini cues, and that's the word mini, M-I-N-I, and the letter Q, like the very small cues, the mini cues. And all that stuff is on, um, on your streaming services as well. We're actually, we work with uh, uh, the Community College of Philadelphia. They have a, a music business program, and we're on, we're on their record label, which is kind of fun. Cool. That's awesome. So that's that. And then I'm most active on Instagram. So if you're interested in how to play guitar scales and uh, you want to see an occasional, very occasional clip of me playing a guitar solo with John Legend uh, at Ben O'Neill <laughs> Guitar, I actually, I like, I open up Instagram every once in a while and there's like a few less followers than there were before. Sometimes, you know, <laughs> and a few, and I'm like, oh, those are the people that thought they were going to see like pictures of John Legend here, but they're not. It's like, oh, you play guitar for real. I'm not interested in that. Okay. <laughs> Cool. And then, uh, thanks. And I'll, um, I'll put all that in the show notes and, uh, O'Neill is with two L's on the end. I should also say that's right. O N E I L L. And then, um, last question is any ask for folks listening can be go listen to my stuff or anything else that you, Hmm. that you would request that they do or say, or interact with. Well, yeah, I would ask that anybody that's listening, check out the music I'm making. And if you think, uh, Particularly if you think Light Volume 1 is interesting and you'd like to support a local homeless shelter, you could 
follow the links and uh, to, at benoneilmusic.com and, and support that way. But also, I guess what I would really ask the listeners is to please support your uh, effort here, Andy, because I think this is, I'm interested to see how this grows and I'm interested to see who you end up talking to. I'm sure it's going to be a bunch of interesting people. So that's my ask of the listeners is to support this, uh, your new podcast. Thanks. And um, I appreciate the plug there at the end for me. <laughs> that's, that's great. Ben, thank you so much. I appreciate you being here and um, I'll put all the links and stuff in the show notes and um, folks will come and find you, I'm sure. Thank you for listening. Cool. Andy, thank you. What a pleasure. I hope I didn't talk too much. Oh my God. It was great. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ben O'Neill. As a reminder, you can find Ben at his website, www.benoneillmusic.com. O'Neill is spelled O-N-E-I-L-L. That's two L's. And you should also check out his latest EP, Light Volume 1. And you can also check out his band, The Mini Cues, wherever you listen to streaming music. And don't forget, you can find all of the links and resources to the things that we talked about on this episode in the show notes. Thanks once again for listening. Don't forget to rate and subscribe if you enjoyed this episode. We've got a couple of really great conversations coming up. And we'll catch you next time on Music Lessons. After all you've seen and done Can you look me in the eye and tell me the truth?